0: listeners to episode 112 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode here is i'm going to have my last winter year end episode for this year of course as this is going to be number 13 for doing those overall and on this episode i have a 2021 release of the deep house as this is one i heard about on podcast sounded interesting so i watched it And then upon a recommendation from my co-host over on SideQuest Podcast, uh, Jake, wanted me to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation, so that will be the other featured review, you know, because that kind of, supposed to be kind of a Christmas movie, but not necessarily falls into that. And then also for you, I have mini reviews of a rewatch of St. Maud, Reptilicus, I did get to watch the medium from 2021 that is on Shudder, as well as a rewatch of Sensor. And then the last one I'm going to have for you as a mini review is going to be the Advent Calendar. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. I will have a little bit in the outro for you for what my next episode will be. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinefire. And for my first mini review this week for you is going to be Saint Maud. This is technically from 2019, but it got its wide release here in the United States in 2021 due to the COVID pandemic. This was written and directed by Rose Glass. It stars Morfred Clark, Kelly Hoffman Dunn, and Jennifer Ely. This is a drama, horror, mystery, thriller film that is sitting on a 6.7 on imdb and a 3.6 on letterboxd with the synopsis being follows a pious nurse who becomes dangerously obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patient now this is a movie that i really wanted to re-watch before the end of the year because it was so anticipated for me in 2020 but then i didn't get to watch it because it got pushed back so i made sure that i watched it and then It actually made the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs because it came out in its native country of the United Kingdom in 2019. And then Jamie and I actually have watched this one together twice now. So I think just some of the things that I want to kind of reiterate here in the second one, because if you want to hear a full review of this one, I have it as a featured one back on episode number 68, which was Women Appreciation number four, as this was one of the featured ones over on that episode. So go back and check that out if you want to hear a more in-depth look. But what I really kind of just want to get into here is that we have this party girl who lost herself in a tragic thing at work. And I think it's kind of interesting. She found religion, but I think her problem is that she dives in too much to whatever she does, almost to the obsession point. She also is kind of a believer in St. Thomas More, where she really needs to keep herself in constant pain to get closer to God. Now, she is looking over the sick woman who is jaded. Now, Maud being a devout believer, and this is actually a recent change for her. Now she just really wants to fit in because she feels quite lonely and i think that's something that really kind of needs to be figured out here and then we get to see that as well about her passing everything through a former co-worker who's surprised that she's actually still practicing medicine because of everything that happened and then we have a big guy who kind of points things out there as well and I do think that Jamie is right that we have this overachiever who failed and because she failed at something it really kind of struck her. I also don't think she fits in very well, so she does whatever she can whether it's, you know, going too full into drinking and then, you know, blacking out and doing things she doesn't remember or in this case, you know, going to religion where she ends up making some horrible decisions and everything. I think Clark does an excellent job at portraying this character and everything like that. That's one of the big standouts for this. Is this really a character study of whether or not there's something supernatural going on here or this is just mental illness and she's having a psychotic break i think what we see at the end really kind of drives home the truth of this movie and i think that does an excellent job there especially because we get to see what maud thinks she's seeing as well as what is really going on in a brief vision so i think this one was hard not to come in with high expectations for me but i do think there was still some there this movie definitely gave me exactly what I wanted. We are towing the line of whether there's something supernatural is happening or it's someone having a mental break. As I said, I think the performance from Maud really sells either explanation. The rest of the acting helps push it to where it ends up. I think the effects that we get are effective and the sound design is great and the soundtrack worked for that as well. So I think this is a good movie. I'm glad that I finally had the chance to revisit this as it solidifies where I was previously. This is one of the best horror films that I've seen for 2021. So my rating after both viewings now of St. Maud is a nine out of 10. And then up next for you, I have Reptilicus. This is from 1961. This was directed by Paul Bang and Sidney W. Pink. Now, Sidney W. Pink also came up with the original story and wrote the American version of the screenplay, but Ib melkor wrote the original screenplay now this stars bent meldijing Ashborn anderson and paul woldokai i might have mispronounced those names so i do apologize there but this is an adventure action drama fantasy horror sci-fi thriller from denmark this is also a kaiju film if you didn't know that and this is currently sitting on a 3.6 on imdb and a 1.9 on letterboxd with this snots being after copper miners discover part of a frozen tale of a prehistoric monster in Lapland, scientists inadvertently bring it back to life. So it's a movie that I would known about for as long as I can remember. A VHS that my parents bought had a trailer for this movie on it, and I would never seen it though. Movies like this, one my parents would have had to have wanted to see it or owned it. If not, it would fall into a blind spot. So I'm now watching as part of my odyssey through the ones that I'm doing as well. So this is an interesting movie. From trivia that I'd read, as of 2007, this is the only kaiju movie to come out of Denmark. Now, I grew up loving giant monster movies like Godzilla and the like. This is one that I had never seen, and to reiterate, my parents didn't own this one, and they didn't seek it out for some reason. And that's partially the reason there, is my mom has actually gone through things like Gorgo and whatnot, so I'm surprised she hasn't tried to see this one, but I still enjoy these type of movies for the commentary that comes with them that's where i'm going to start i don't fully believe that the science behind this one makes sense they reference that lizards can regrow their tails when they've been removed or that if you cut a starfish in half it will create two the problem that i have here is that a lizard's tail will not create a second lizard i think they have a decent idea here but they didn't fully think it out that is something i can let slide though because i mean movie logic it is interesting though that professor martins and dr dalby who are the two guys who are kind of running the study give this tail a nutrient Rich serum. I'm not sure why you would do that outside of keeping the specimen, you know, like alive per se, so they can continue to study it, as they originally think that once it thaws out, it's going to be ruined. The movie is pointing to the fact that they think it will regenerate into whatever its full form is. It feels to me like they're asking for destruction that follows. Now, another bit of commentary here I want to go into is with General Grayson. Now, he is stationed here due to the United Nations from the United States. I can see that, but I also don't think an American would be in charge in another country. It almost feels like they are doing this to cater to the American audience. What is even more interesting though is that General Grayson becomes so enraged to defeat Reptilicus that he will put lives in jeopardy. This actually feels like the movie is taking shots at Americans. We are known for shooting first and ask questions later. General Grayson bumps heads with how to defeat the monster and some of his decision to create more problems. What I did like though is that the best laid plans are foiled by the creature along with a fear from humanity. And then shifting away from the story just slightly here i'm going to go to the effects the look of reptilicus is interesting it is done practically which is you know due to the era i like the idea of this being a sea dragon denmark has its roots in norse history and mythology and i believe that this is one of the countries that had maps with dragons living in certain areas because they didn't fully understand you know meteorological type things and like rough seas and stuff to that effect now the american version is problematic with this though Professor Martin states it isn't essentially a sea creature. We see, though, that underneath the water, it's just fine. I'm not sure why they would take this route. The effects of moving to this monster aren't great, and the poison slime it spits is somewhat funny to me. I don't expect a lot, but I've seen movies older than this that do some of these things a bit better, so it is a letdown. But the moving from the effects of the cinematography and the pacing... This movie feels like there's a lot of filler in it. We have General Grayson being shown around town by one of Professor Martin's daughters. This does allow us to look at the city before it is attacked by the creature, so I do enjoy that aspect of it, especially because we do get to come back to some of these establishing shots. I didn't need as much as we got, though, and we also don't need the nightclub scene. It didn't add much other than padding. I'd still say the cinematography was fine despite my issues with some of this as well. Then finally, I'll take this to the acting. I thought that Mijing or however you'd say that, was fine as spend. He does fade into the background to the climax, and I actually forgot who he was, if I'm going to be honest. I like that we had Anderson as our professor. He's our expert, but I love that he doesn't know everything. What is interesting is that he's friendly with General Grayson, but he also butts heads with him about how to handle things. And then, Voldike was fine. I also thought that Dirch Passer was interesting, because he adds comedies that didn't fit for me. I understand that he was a known actor for this, so it does get people into the theater. Then we also have people like Anne Scherner, Mimi Heinrich, Marleus Behrens. I thought they were all fine. They are quite attractive women, so I do think that it kind of adds something there for people. And then we also have Carl Otteson, who plays his role of General Grayson. It doesn't fully make sense, but I like that he embodies an American military man. Other than that, I'd say that... Ole Wisberg, who plays Captain Einar Brandt as the, like, Danish-type military guy. I thought he was good, and the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed, in my opinion. So in conclusion here, this movie isn't as good as I thought it would be. It does have some interesting aspects to it, and this historical significance being the only kaiju film from Denmark. There are some problematic aspects of the story for me. The acting, though, is fine. The effects have charm for the era, while also leaving something to be desired. I would say that the sound design did add some tension for me, but it also didn't fully make sense either. I have to say that this is slightly just over average for me. There are too many issues for me to go higher, so my rating here for Reptilicus is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. And I also got to watch The Medium. This is from here in 2021. This is directed by Bang Zhang... Pizanatakun and then he also wrote the screenplay while the original story was written by Chandivid Dafazani and Na Hong Jin. This stars Nalarli Golmong Golpek, Sanani Utuma, and Seriani Yan Kitakan. So if I do pronounce any of those names wrong, I do apologize there. But this is a horror film that is a co-production between thailand and south korea this is currently sitting on a 6.7 on imdb and a 3.4 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a horrifying story of a shaman's inheritance in the isan region of thailand what could be possessed in a family member might not be the goddess that they make it out to be so this is a movie that i was interested in seeing as it was selected as a bonus watch for a horror movie challenge that i did during october which was the 22 shots of moods and horror movie challenge I didn't get to see this then, but I heard Duncan from the podcast Under the Stairs cover this in October, and it went on a list for me for 2021 films to see. He sold me on it when it was the writers of The Wailing and the director of the original Shutter film from Thailand, and, you know, just hearing that had me on board. So I'm going to start is that this is an interesting found footage film. What I like and what makes this work for me is that we start off learning that this is a documentary crew following different shamans from around Thailand. They do well in establishing the culture there and why this is a thing. It is believable, actually. They decide to follow one by the name of Nim as she seems to be more interesting and the dark events just sort of happen while they are there. When I'm watching a found footage film, I want there to be some believability even if the movie goes outrageous. We get that here. I can believe that they would continue to film as things go on which also helps i also like that things grow and a story is developing they expand out to follow more people to get all sides of it now going from this idea i want to first delve into the character of nim and this goddess that she is the shaman for of bayan nim had other dreams her older sister was supposed to be the next shaman but she didn't want it noi did some shady things and that's the older sister And we'll learn about that as things progress here, and that causes Bayan to switch over to Nim. Regardless of how she felt back then, she accepted her fate. We get to see this great scene later in the movie that is a reveal I wasn't fully expecting, but after it did, it does make sense. I don't want to spoil what that is, but what I will say is that I like how grounded Nim is despite what her profession is. She likes to help people, but not everything is as it seems. Now, what I mean there goes back to the synopsis. We aren't fully sure about Bayan, and the movie establishes that. It states they don't know what the origins of this deity or where she came from. It becomes creepy when the daughter of Noi by the name of Mink thinks that she is selected as an ex-shaman. She has a normal life and doesn't want it. Noi wants to prevent it, but her daughter becomes possessed and acting strange. So then she accepts her daughter doing an acceptance ritual, you know, to take on this deity that is when nim steps in she goes back to things not being as they seem this hooked me and had me questioning things at first i thought this was maybe it was the shaman performing the ritual not fully understanding but it's much deeper than that now where i'll shift next would be dealing with curses it almost is showing that not all of them are bad there is also showing us that not all possession is bad we don't see that concept a lot now technically noi was being possessed and she fought it nim is supposedly possessed by bayan Mink is also under possession, but by what? This does seem to go back to the funeral with Noe's husband and Mink's father. The men seem to die tragically and untimely deaths in that family. There seems to be a curse over them. Now, there is a reveal here that is interesting and kind of blows this wide open. The movie also kind of reveals hidden family secrets that are dark as well. So I think it's enough for the story here, so I want to shift over to discussing the acting. Golmunkolpek as good as our lead here. I like that Mink isn't shown for a bit into the movie but soon she becomes a focus. She's a character that I feel bad for and she has a life that she wants to live and those events ruin that. I think the actress does well with her body movements when she's possessed. Overall I'd say that she killed it with her performance. I like Uta Mua as the shaman that we start with and who we think is going to be our main character the whole time. I believed her performance. Yen Kitakan is good as his mother, who is faced with difficult decisions, and she also believes in the supernatural, but she's also willing to find scientific ways to save her daughter. Other than that, I think we get good supporting acting from Yasaka Chayasorn as Manit, who is the older brother of Noi and Nim. Then there's also Boonsong Nakpu as Santi, who is another shaman, as well as Pang, portrayed by Arnui Watana who is the wife to Manette? i thought the acting was just good across the board in my opinion now from here i want to go to the pacing real quick this movie just runs over two hours long it is interesting that duncan warned about the movie being slow it is for sure a slow burn the first hour or so is establishing this world and the religion that we are seeing what i like though is that i'm sucked into this we are getting a bit of mink descending into madness so that helps It is like the last 45 minutes or so that things get wild. If you can get into that far, I think it's worth the payoff. So in the last parts of this movie, I want to go into the cinematography effects and the soundtrack. For the former, I've already said that I believe the found footage aspects of the movie. I think it adds a creepy level to what we're getting here, and it feels more real. I was impressed with this, to be honest. The effects that go along with it are good. I know there's probably some CGI in there, but I didn't mind it. This movie legitimately unnerved me with what they do. It doesn't happen often, and I'm glad that when it can. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack was diegetic, and what we are hearing is from the scenes and the world. It adds another level of realism to the atmosphere on top of it. So in conclusion here, this movie is what I'm glad that I heard about and caught my interest. I'm glad that I didn't sleep on this one. It has aspects that tick boxes for me, and I enjoyed how it played out. It is interesting to look for, you know, culture that is different from mine. I think the performances are good and they bring the characters to life. The atmosphere builds that is creepy with the found footage style of shooting it. The effects and the soundtrack from the world that it takes place. For me, I'd say this is a good movie and it's bordering on just being great. I'm excited to revisit this one again now that I have. So my rating here for the medium from 2021 is an 8.5 out of 10. And then I also have another rewatch for you here of Sensor. This is one that I actually watched back on episode number 86 where I did a featured review back there if you want to check out you know deeper thoughts on this. but just let me give you a little bit more backstory and information on the movie here is that we have sensor here from 2021. This was directed and co-written by Prano Bailey Bond. It was also co-written with Anthony Fletcher. It stars Naim Elgar. Michael Smiley, and Nicholas Burns. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being, after viewing a strangely familiar video, Nasty, Enid, a film censor, sends out to solve the past mystery of her sister's disappearance, embarking on a quest that dissolves the line between fiction and reality. So this is a movie that... I wasn't all that high on, but after I started listening to some podcasts, it really did make me kind of turn around on it. Cuz we have this critic here of Enid who is very strict about some of the cuts that she's making. But what I like here is that she ends up getting shook when the press learns that a movie that her and another censor kind of approved end up causing somebody to kill his wife and do a scene that was from the movie and now they're calling him the Amnesiac killer because he doesn't remember what he did and i also like that she has some issues here that are deep-seated because her sister disappeared when they were little kids and they never found any sort of trace and she doesn't seem to necessarily know what happened so her parents are filing that she has died under you know mysterious circumstances but this makes her set out to try to prove that her sister is still alive and that's when she sees this actress of alice lee there was something I heard on a podcast that made me want to re-watch this movie really bad because there is some things that I don't necessarily know if I picked up on the first time around. And looking at it that way, I end up really enjoying this movie much more. I also like that accusations can have bad consequences, and that's kind of what sends Enid down this path that she's on. I also like that in this movie, the focus gets tighter as attentions rise. And I also like that... Viewing these video nasties isn't bad for everybody, but there are certain people that if they're mentally unstable and they watch them, and I also kind of think censorship might be a little bit harsh, because I think people should watch what they can handle, and as for like kids watching things, I think that should fall on the parents not to have the government telling us what to do. So in conclusion here, I liked some parts of this movie originally. It is interesting setting this during the video nasties era in the United Kingdom, and giving us a censor that due to her mental state shouldn't be watching these movies that she is. And that's another thing I didn't bring up is that a movie that she is watching kind of starts her down this path as well and kind of breaks her a bit because it is so eerily similar to what happened with her and her sister. I like there's a good idea and mystery here. It works even better than after the second viewing. Seeing the breakdown of Enid is good, especially with how well Alger plays the role. The effects that we get are solid, giving it a touch of a sleazy movies that the movie is referencing. I also like the effect cinematography for the climax as well as the conclusion. It is interesting and disorienting. I can't recommend this to everyone. You really need to enjoy slow burn films. And even then, I'm not sure everybody that will watch this will like it. For me, though, I find this now to be a good movie after the second watch. So my rating here for Sensor is an 8 out of 10 now. And then for my final mini review of this week is going to be the Advent Calendar. This goes by the original title of Le Calendare. This is from 2021. This is written and directed by Patrick reed Rotmont. This star Eugenie Durand, Orani Maganier, and Clemente Oliveri, which if I pronounce any of those incorrectly, I do apologize. This is a horror thriller film that is a co-production between France and Belgium. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Eva is a paraplegic. On her birthday, her friend Sophie gives her a strange advent calendar. It's not the traditional treats you would find when you open each drawer, but quirky gifts that are scary and get bloodier. So this is a movie that popped up to me via social media thanks to Shudder. I saw it seem to be being enjoyed overall, and I figured I would watch it on Christmas Day. I'll admit, it had an interesting concept with this advent calendar being used in a horror movie as well. So where I want to start is with the concept. Now I'll admit, I didn't know what an advent calendar was growing up. I'm sure I'd seen them in movies, but I'd never had one. I like the idea of taking something like this and doing something dark with it. It is using the idea of a children's item where it is normally candy or chocolate and helping them keep track of the days and you're doing something in an order. This movie is using this idea, expanding on it as the tensions rise, it escalates how things go and I can work with that for sure. But this isn't a new concept, though. It is taking the idea of a cursed object, and once you use it, you must see it through or face the consequences. The form it is taking is just something that is new. What I like here is how Eva gets sucked in. She wants to talk to her dad, as he has Alzheimer's, and so that's one way this advent calendar entices her. She has a run-in with Boris, who is a friend of her friend Sophie, and he is punished for what happens with him because he... Kind of something that's very despicable. It even gives her things and takes them away as well. I should point out that early on, we know it is a demon of some kind that is behind it. It does look like something that would fit in the world of Hellraiser. And it also goes by the name of Ich, which is... I knew from taking German in college meaning I. I bring this up so we know that it isn't a good force and she's being enticed. How it progresses is good for me. It escalates and I don't think that it jumps too far ahead for that. It is only when she believes and wants the ultimate prize that it does some horrible things for it. It punishes those around her in an interesting way as well, especially with how close she has to come to some people. Not everything works for me here, though. The first rule is that all the candies must be eaten. It does get around this that others eat some of it, so I'm fine there, but she has to eat the first one, so the curse is, you know, focusing on her. Others can get some of it from there, and I can work with that. There is a toy car from one. There's a card in another and even a doll. I understand why the movie uses some of these as you just don't want necessarily to have her eating everything. It doesn't ruin it as I was saying but it does feel like a bit of a cheat for me with how the rules are set up. Now the rules are a bit vague as well which I guess that's how you can kind of get around it and this comes to question later in the movie and I do like it. Now the movie makes you wonder if what is being done works or not. So then I will move away from the story there and come to the acting which I did like. I thought Duran was good as our lead. I'm assuming that she's not actually paraplegic, and I think what they do with the effects has a good idea here to make her legs look like they have atrophy. It does well at being someone who is bitter about her plight as well. Her progression as a character to being more ruthless for what she wants is good. This is a character study of her for sure. Then we have her best friend who was portrayed by Magnier, and I like her as her best friend, and I like that she's also kind of a selfish person as well. She does do some good things for Eva, but like I said, she also does things that she only kind of thinks about herself at times, and I thought that worked for Sophie. I also like Elivari. I'd even say that Yanis Akbri, Cyril Grenier, Vladimir Perrin, Jerome Paquete, Laura Prezegurvic, Isabelle Tannehill and Jean-Francois Garrard. I thought they were all good as well for the different things that are needed for these characters. And it also works well to push Eva to where she ends up. And then I would also that the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack for this is where I'll go now. Now, for the former, I thought they were good. The movie went mostly practical with everything that I could see. They don't use a lot of them from what I could tell. The blood has good color and consistency the bit of gore that we get was also good i thought the cinematography was fine there are some disorienting shots that were used and we're getting a supernatural element here so eva might be one place and end up in others without knowing how i do like the aspect of the movie for that we aren't getting dreams but more fuzzy focus of not remembering things almost like a blackout then finally we have the soundtrack i thought it worked for what was needed i thought the sound design works well here which helps for the atmosphere So in conclusion, this is an interesting Christmas horror movie. Outside of the calendar, we aren't getting a lot of those elements, but I'm wondering if part of this is that it's from France and Belgium. Watching this as American could be why. Regardless, I like the cursed object and the entity behind it. We don't learn a lot about it, but we don't necessarily need it either. We get an interesting ending with this and the acting from Durand was good as our lead and I think the rest of the cast pushes her to where she ends up. The effects and cinematography were good to me. I also thought that the soundtrack and design helped to build the atmosphere. For me, I thought this was an above average movie that is just missing out on being good and this is one I will definitely revisit for sure. So my rating here for the advent calendar is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is now get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. So here we are in southwest France. We're lost. It wouldn't exactly be easy to find if it was really such a super secret spot, would it? Pierre's offered to take us to an isolated arm of the lake that runs deep into the woods. At the bottom of this part of the lake, there's a perfectly preserved house. It's not on any map. It's a long way, but I promise it's worth it. Nervous? Maybe a little. We'll get back to New York, we'll edit the footage. Once we reach our first million views, we're going straight to the Littlest Chapel in Vegas. Visibility's pretty good. We're reaching a first plateau ten meters down. There she is. I forgot how superstitious people are in these parts. Wow. And for my first feature review i have the deep house this is from here in 2021 this was co-directed between alexander Bastillo and julian marie they co-wrote the screenplay together but then the english screenplay adaptation is done by julian david and rachel parker this movie stars Camila rowe james jagger and eric sabin while also featuring Alexis Servais Anne Classenz, Carolina Massi, Marie Kaffir, and Marie Bernard. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between France and Belgium. This is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.5 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a young and modern couple go to france to explore an underwater house and share their findings on social media the problem is once they get down there a presence awakens a dark spirit inside the house that haunts it So this is a movie that i heard about through podcasts the premise intrigued me so i decided to make this a featured review it allowed me also to see if this had a potential year end you know top 10 type movie and i just knew what the basic premise was so i was you know kind of intrigued at least for that much now there will be something i delve into a little bit later about some of the podcasters that were talking about it and some of the things that i was thinking about while watching this but before i get into that let me do some featured notes about some of our key players here First, I will start off with our directors, and it'll be Bastille, who has seven credits. I've seen four of them. All of them are in horror, with the first one being the original French version of Inside. I've also seen Among the Living, Leatherface, and now this movie here, and I'm intrigued to see some of his other stuff like Livid, ABCs of Death 2. I know he has a short in that one, and then it looks like he also has another one out called Candisha to round out all of his works. Now he works regularly with Mari. and. Mari has nine credits I've seen four of them and they are the same ones as Bastille now the ones that I haven't seen are the same seven of Mari's work in horror as well then as writers Bastille has the same seven credits all in horror now except there is one that he wrote called under the ice it looks like Mari also helped on that one so I've seen three of his nine credits he has total and seven in horror then moving to our actors I'll start with Jagger he has 11 credits this is the only one that i've seen so far his first in horror was in 2009 with knife edge and then a movie called caged i haven't seen either of those two but i have heard of the sound of violence another one that he's been in which came out this year and it's on my list of potential movies to watch then we have row she has 14 credits this is her only horror film and the only one that i've seen and then the last one i'll go to would be seven who has 57 credits this is the only one that I've seen. In horror, he has four. First one that he had was a movie called Cage from 2010. He was in Bloody Christmas 2 and Mirages. I have not heard any of these other three, but they are potential movies that I might check out at some point as well. So this movie we start off in the Ukraine. This is an interesting introduction to our two leads here, where we have Tina portrayed by Roe, who is American, but she's able to speak fluent French from her grandmother. Now she has seen Ben, who was portrayed by Jagger, who was originally from England. Now, something interesting here is that whenever Tina gets mad at him, she will speak to herself in French, which like, I think is kind of a cool thing to do because he can't understand her. Now, they've gone to an abandoned building to film with like GoPro style cameras and putting it on social media. Ben is hoping to make money off of this, where Tina is starting to just enjoy, you know, seeing these buildings because they're kind of just interesting and weird. But she doesn't like when Ben tries to scare her. Now, three months later, they're in France, as the synopsis states. Tina's in the bathtub practicing holding her breath. She's only able to go for a little over a minute and a half. Now, she goes outside to meet with Ben, and she tells him that she can hold her breath for three minutes. They then go to a small French town. It is looking rundown, and Ben points out some of the features of the architecture, which will come into play once they get under the water. Now, Tina asks for directions as they're looking for a town that's been flooded and now at the bottom of a lake. Now, when they arrive where they're told, it isn't what they were expecting. It now seems like a tourist trap, and there's just a bunch of people like swimming, you know, Doing a bunch of stuff like that, and there's boating and everything. Now, Tina wants to make the best of this where Ben sulks. He goes over to get wine and meets with a guy by the name of Pierre, portrayed by Sevon. Ben tells Tina about this guy who knows of a secluded spot where there's still a house that is preserved in the water. This bothers Tina because I thought they agreed to just have fun, but she agrees to go. Now, Pierre takes him out to a place, and our two leads get into their gear. Now, she's a little bit leery about all of this, but they get into their gear, as I was saying, and... They have scuba tanks, about one hour's worth of air, and a drone. Pierre states a line that is something along the lines of, Which is dead, can eternal lie? This turns out to be a family motto, but it also gave me Lovecraftian vibes, which also get me to my first bit of trivia here, as the family motto is a French translation of the famous Lovecraft quote, as I was saying, which is, That is dead, which can eternal lie, and with strange eons, even death may die, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to play with there especially with some of the stuff that we'll get here in a little bit. Now, our two leads go into the house that is underwater. They struggle to get in, but do so through a window on the second level. It leads to the attic and the house below. They find there are no fish inside of the gate, which seems odd. Everything inside seems to be oddly preserved as well. As they search, they make a terrifying discovery in the basement. The door was blocked originally by a large statue of Jesus. There could be something supernatural going on here as our couple gets trapped inside of this house with a limited amount of air. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap, and that fleshes out enough for our synopsis. Where I want to start is that I like the concept here. I heard from a couple podcasts a little bit about this movie. Over on Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, they brought up an interesting question. Would this movie be remembered, if not for the interesting variation on a common story? What they mean is that we have a haunted house, but this movie is setting it underneath the water. The added element being that our divers have a limited amount of air, so it creates urgency to get out. Before I answer this question, I want to flesh out some of these things just a little bit more. Where I'm going to start is a bit deeper here in the concept of the movie. I like the idea of this couple going around to abandoned buildings. They're filming it like Ghost Hunter shows. Ben isn't adding anything that isn't really happening there as well. So like anything you see on the camera is just what happens. Like he's not adding in anything for scares. He is playing it straight as I'm saying. What is interesting about him is that he falls into this typical millennial mentality. They're doing everything for social media and trying to no longer need to work a real job, or at least he is. Tina has come around to go into these places, but she doesn't fully buy into the show and what they're trying to do with it. This does cause some tension between them, especially as the tensions rise for our situation in this movie. From there, we have this house that they go to that is under the water. There's a dark history behind it. Our two leads learn of it, and I'll be honest, it was creepy, and they learn about it while they're inside the house as well. I got a bit of lovecraftian vibe as i said but it isn't too heavy we aren't getting like elder gods or monsters that are older than humanity don't think that coming in this family was doing a ritual of sorts and that is the reason behind why the house is haunted there's also kind of why the house is also preserved there's also the model that pierre utters how it factors in makes sense for sure as this movie isn't doing anything new here but i found it to be fairly effective Then to get back to the question that i posed i said that this movie is taking this haunted house film that we've seen before and putting it under the water i do think there's a twist to it because of that our couple wants to get out but they can't they're trapped by supernatural forces there could be a way to look at this that they're just panicking and not paying attention and going to the wrong spot i don't buy this but it is a way to look at it and i'll be honest i think this movie would be a bit more generic without this twist and be forgotten having it set under the water does set it apart being that the story is generic aside from that it does hold it back for me as well now moving from the story i'll go to the acting i think that roe and jagger are good they both feel like they're characters and we get to know them they feel like a couple and bring life to you know what they're supposed to savan is solid as a minor role of pierre there are some interesting deeper context to his character it wasn't overly shocking to me to be honest but i think it is needed i'd say that Surveys, Claassen's, and Massey are all you know good and work as this Montagnac family that the house originally belonged to. I think they're all quite creepy in their roles and I would say that the acting is solid overall because of that. Then The last things to go over would be the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack. For the former, it was interesting. A good amount of this is done under the water and it feels like that. There is this bit of found footage feel here as well. Tina and Ben are fitted with cameras, and we also have this drone that's another camera that is documenting the footage. That almost gives it like a cinematic view, and I'm not sure I would call this found footage other than that, but going along with this, how it shot was effective. I think the makeup that they have for the family underneath the water was creepy. That was effective. I like how odd it is that the house is perfectly preserved, and it makes sense. Other than that, they're limited with the effects, and for the soundtrack as well. I think it is done fairly well with what they're doing. There are times where music starts playing and it shouldn't be. That helped add another creepy factor. I also think the lack of sound under the water also adds another aspect to it as well. So before I close this out I just have a bit more trivia here is that this takes place in the south of France and then Blumhouse Productions and Epics acquired the film for the North American distribution. So in conclusion here this is a movie that is an interesting one. We have a generic ghost story here that gets added by this twist of being under the water with a limited amount of time. There's a slight Lovecraftian vibe to it. The acting is solid. I think that it fits the characters and gives them life. I think how it is shot is interesting. The effects are good enough for what they needed, and the soundtrack adds an interesting atmosphere as well. Not a great movie by any stretch. It's lacking for me to go a bit higher than what I'm going to give it. I'd say this is an above-average movie, just missing out on being good for me. So my rating here for The Deep House is a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review a bizarre event. This would make a great story. For her, it was the chance of a lifetime. I work for the LAI. I'm an investigative reporter. There's got to be some logical explanation for the burning. But some questions... Get away from me! Leave me alone! ...are better left unanswered. What happened? Are you all right? Ah! The woman who jumped. She was my daughter. But now you've come to take her place. Make uh. your fear real. Get it out. It's the night you've been waiting for Kill the man Become a whole woman The night you've been screaming for It's step Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 Initiation You're one of us now Join the club And for my second featured review on this episode Is going to be Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 Initiation This is from 1990. This was directed by Brian Usna, who also helped come up with the story along with S.J. Smith, Arthur Gorson, and Richard N. Gladstein, but Zeph E. Daniel was the one who actually wrote the screenplay. This stars Clint Howard, Neith Hunter, and Tommy Hinckley, while also featuring Hugh Fink, Richard N. Gladstein, Reggie Bannister, Alice... Beasley, Glenn Chin, Maud Adams, Janine Bates, Laurel Lockhart, Ben Slack, Conan Usna, Marjean Holden, Ilsa Setzel, David Wells, Danny Klein, and Ashley. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.9 on IMDb and a... on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a reporter investigating the bizarre death of a woman who leaped from a building in flames, finds herself mixed up in a cult, who are making her part of their sacrificial ceremony during the Christmas season. So this is a movie that I got turned on thanks to podcasts. I caught the original one at the Gateway Film Center a few years ago and then watched the sequel to that one. It is interesting that I just covered the third one over on SideQuest with Jake, and he recommended me seeing this one. I decided to go ahead and make it a featured review due to it being a Christmas movie, technically. So, before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on the key players here. Is that I'll start off with our director of Usna. He has 14 movies that he's directed, of them, I've seen seven. All of his works have been in horror, with his first one being Society, followed by Bride of Reanimator, this movie here, Return to the Living Dead 3. And then I've also seen all of those, obviously. And I've also seen The Dentist, Beyond Reanimator, and Beneath Still Waters. Now, one that I'm really kind of curious to check out is Necronomicon, because I have not seen that one yet, but I've heard some interesting things about it, and I do love me some Lovecraft. Then, moving to our writers, I'll start with Gladstein. He has two credits. This is his first and only horror movie. Now, in 2012, he did a movie called Time Being, and that's one that I haven't seen yet, but it looks like it might have like Frank Lagella, as well as another actor that I enjoy, drawing a blank on what his name is at the moment. And then, to Yuzna as a writer, he has seven credits, and I've seen four. Out of genre, he did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Now, in horror, he wrote Bride of Reanimator. This, the movie sequel that I haven't seen yet, and then Beyond Reanimator. I haven't seen the last in the series I was saying, Necronomicon or Takut, Faces of Fear. Now, there is then Gorson, who has two credits. It's this movie here in Silent Night 3. Keith has five credits, and I've seen three of them. All are in horror with Society as the first. He also did ride of reanimator in this movie here now his last two are dementia and the girl next and i haven't seen these last two as of this recording now we have smith who has two credits i've seen both of them with his first one being this here and then children of the corn seven revelations as the other and then on to howard that is clint howard he has 151 credits the earliest one that i've seen is that he did a voice in the jungle book like the original one from disney i've seen 24 of his movies Now in horror he has 33. The first that I haven't seen was Evil Speak. That would be the earliest one out of everything that he's done in the genre. I've seen 10 of his horror films with Carnosaur, Leprechaun 2, Ice Cream Man, House of the Dead, Rob Zombie's Halloween just to name some of them. And then I'll go next to Hunter as she has 11 credits. I've seen four. Five are in horror I've seen her in Near Dark, Fright Night Part 2, this and *Carnosaur* 2. The only one that I haven't is Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 5. Then finally I'll go to Hinckley. He has 20 credits and I've seen 3. His first was The Terror Within, which I haven't seen. He was in Watchers 2 before this one here. Then he was also in a documentary about direct-to-video movies. Out of genre though, I've seen him in Ocean's 13 and Leatherheads. So for this movie here, we start off with Ricky, who is portrayed by Howard. Now he is appearing from an alleyway. He is homeless and finds a burger on the side of the road. He opens it, exposing that it's covered in ants, and this will be something we'll see quite a bit throughout this movie, but it is funny that he's not grossed out by them, but he's grossed out that there's no cheese on it. His attention is drawn to the top of a building where there is a woman on fire. She is pushed off, and Ricky touches her, burning two of his fingers. The odd part is that only her lower half is on fire. We then shift to a hotel room where we have Kim Levitt, portrayed by Hunter, and Hank, portrayed by Hinckley. They're getting hot and heavy, but Kim is distracted by a news report about the woman who died. It turns out they work together. He is a reporter, and Kim does a calendar as well as the classifieds for the smaller paper. She tells Hank that she wants to pitch the idea of writing an article about this woman, but Hank doesn't think it'll go over well with their boss of Eli portrayed by Bannister, as it seems like it might be a little bit too morbid for their type of paper. Now, she gets quite upset when Eli actually likes the idea and gives it to Hank. Now, Kim talks to with a co-worker of Janice portrayed by Beasley. She decides that since she's up on her work, she's going to go ahead and take the afternoon to investigate what happened. This leads her to the apartment building and the sidewalk where the woman landed. She then meets with Joe, who's portrayed by Chin, who is a butcher. He tells her a bit of what he knows, and he's actually quite sexist in some of his remarks. Kim then goes into a bookstore. There, she is spooked by Ricky and meets the owner of FEMA, portrayed by Adams, she states she didn't know the woman but then she ends up taking a liking to kim and she helps her find a book on spontaneous combustion which is what the reports think happened to this woman but she also gifts her a book on rituals kim doesn't want it but ends up taking it since it's kind of hard and she's very pushy about kim having this book that night kim freaks out she sees a bunch of cockroaches in her sink and they end up getting her dinner it gets worse when she thinks that she sees a giant one underneath her couch We end up seeing it on the wall and then she goes back into her bathroom. This restless night causes her to miss work in the morning and Janice checks on her. Instead of going in, she decides she's going to go to this picnic that FEMA invited her to as she can also use it for research. This gets cut short when Hank finds her there. Kim ends up getting what she wants and ends up working with Hank on this article. The deeper she looks into things, the darker it might become for her. She isn't sure what is real and what's not. She also realizes that this young woman might have been part of a ritual. Kim starts to feel better, but also gets caught up in things that she doesn't fully understand. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap. Now, coming into the series, I knew that eventually these movies would not really reference back to the original one anymore. The one prior to this is loose with it, and this one is even more there. It is interesting that the trivia I read in regards to this movie is that originally the idea for the third movie was scrapped by the director... And then it came back to it here for the fourth one. What I find interesting is that this movie doesn't need the name Silent Night, Deadly Night. It does feel like a bit of a cash grab, to be honest. Part of it is that it takes place in California, so it doesn't have that Christmas feel. There is a character named Ricky, but I don't think he is the one from part two or three, or, I mean, even one for that matter. And, I mean, I do have a bit of trivia here for that, is this marks the first of two times that Howard plays this character named Ricky. He is the only actor to play him more than once, not counting archive footage. And it is unclear if he's playing the same character from the first two films or not, though. So with that out of the way, I do think we have an interesting story here. I'm a sucker for movies with a cult. We get that here, and this one is an all-woman's one. When we get to the ritual portion of the movie, it does turn out to be, one, uh, worshipping like Egyptian gods and goddesses. They also reference Lilith, who appears and is supposed to be Adam's first wife, who wouldn't lie with him, and ended up consorting with the Serpent. It is an interesting story, as she is considered a villain. What I take from it, though, is that she's more of a modern woman and does what she wants to. I'm going to go a bit deeper into this, but I want to finish this idea for the cult first. This adds to the atmosphere of the movie, and it isn't the best take on it, but I like what Kim doesn't know what is real and what isn't. She wants what they're offering her but she isn't necessarily ready to pay the price though it does feel like a bit of rosemary's baby vibe where you don't know who you can trust or who is involved with this cult or not now with that fleshed out i think we have an interesting commentary here it is interesting to me that the director is a male with brian Yusna. he does some interesting things with body horror and we get that here this movie is showing that kim is in a man's world she isn't going to take it though She fights back to get her way. Now, Hank loves her, but he recognizes that it's an old boys club. Eli is sexist, as is another worker under him of Woody, portrayed by Gladstein. Joe falls into that category with the thoughts on women. FEMA also tells how her husband ruined her relationship with her daughter and is now gone forever. There is a certain movie that people either point to as a good feminist message or it angers others i think this movie does a much better job with presenting this idea of feminism and showing kim fighting it in her you know her place with work and everything like that so and also before i move away from the story here i have just a little bit more of trivia that i want to share here is that screenwriter daniel incorporated several ideas and scenarios that he had originally envisioned for his previous film of society which yusena also directed But had been unable to fit it into the storyline. The film's US release would predate that of society by nearly two years, which is kind of interesting there. The basis of the film's script was originally meant for the third movie in the series, but ended up being used here when the makers of that film turned down that script. And this marks the first time in the series that it doesn't involve a killer Santa as well. So I think that's good for the story as well as the trivia for it. So I'm going to go next to the effects. Now since I've already said about Yuzna and him using body horror, I saw in the opening credits that Screaming Mad George worked on this so I was excited. We get these giant insects that are creepy and well done. I think the blood works. Everything was done practically, especially since the era. I was thoroughly really impressed by what kind of budget they were working with here and what they could you know, come to life with it. The cinematography also helps here and that was well done, but when I see Yuzna's name I come to expect that. So next should be the acting. My favorite part of this movie was Howard. He plays this guy who should probably institutionalized, and it is sad that he's homeless. I liked what his character does as the movie develops. Hunter is solid as our lead, and I like what we get to see with her, especially as she descends into madness and not knowing what is real. As she loses it, she is trying to hold it together at work. Hinkley is fine as her boyfriend. He is established and where she wants to be. I think he means well while also doing some annoying things. Adams is solid as leader of the cult. I also like those that are part of it. I was enjoying the cameos from Bannister, Beasley, and the rest of the cast that rounded this out for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this movie is better than it has any business being for me. I like the idea of this cult and Kim being pulled into it. There's this question of what's real and what isn't. This cult could be helping her, or it could just be her ambition. Social commentary is something I can appreciate. The acting I thought was fine. No one is great, but it works. The effects were good and the cinematography is solid. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out or hurt the movie either. I don't like that it has a Silent Night, Deadly Night name, though. It doesn't fit with the rest of the series and lacks that true Christmas feel. I still say this is probably better than the previous one, and I would just still say that it's just over-average, though. So my rating here for Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 4, Initiation, is going to be a 6 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Love I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode 112 of Journey with a Cinephile, if you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have run on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. Like to become friends with me on Facebook. I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish Letterbox. I'm David OSU, and over there I'll be posting all the reviews for anything that is horror or non-horror like that I have been watching. And then if you'd like to follow my Instagram, that's David OSU87. And then the Journey with a cinephile Instagram is Journey with a cinephile all one word. And over there I'll be posting all of the movie reviews for anything that I am reviewing as well. And then what I would ask you to do for the last thing would be that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated, as well as you're able to rate and review so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can get to more listeners out there as well. So for the next episode is going to be, of course, my year-end episode, since that one is going to fall just into January on that first Monday there, which I believe is the 3rd. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is continue to do rewatches and try to cram in as many new 2021 films that I have not seen yet. And then also on that one, I'm going to do Last Odyssey through the Ones movie as that is going to be a movie by the title of mother joan of the angels from 1961 this one sounded quite interesting to me and then what i'm also probably going to do is also start my trek through the twos which is going to be what i'm going to be doing for 2022 so i'm not sure what movie i'm going to be watching there it's probably going to end up being a rewatch, as i believe nosferatu might have came out in 1922 not sure yet but that will be something that i will be visiting as you know the year comes to a close don't think there's anything else i need to get up to speed with here so what i will say then in closing is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending